Welcome to Probably Science. My name is Andy Wood. I'm Matt Kirshen. This is our third attempt at starting the podcast. Uh, I'm just going to be honest about that. My, my tech sure, side of things yeah. isn't working. It's, I don't know the what's going on. The internet is mad at us. Yeah, if there's on, any on weird the artifacts. Anniversary, uh, well, I'll, the... I'll be responsible for taking... Can you hear me now, by the way? Yeah, I can hear you. I can hear you clearly. We just okay. keep starting sentences <laughs> at the same time. Oh, that's just us being bad at podcasting. Yes. Or is it? You hear me now? <laughs> I did that one on purpose. Okay. God damn you. Uh, why don't we bring our guest in instead of like, making her put up with any more of this nonsense? We should do, because it, <laughs> it's another rare comedy person who's also a science person. It's comedy person and analytics consultant, Sarah Dorfman. Hey, Sarah. Hey, guys. We- yes, I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. The technical difficulties. It's like it's like every it's like every work call I have all the time. Oh God, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, we we stopped we started recording a bit after the point that the cat was walking across the equipment as well. So that was an extra little bit of hassle. And uh, let's just say amateurism. I don't nice. I don't have a very professional cat, listeners. You might already <laughs> know that from previous episodes, but my my cat just does not get proper podcast etiquette. Oh, you're, you should. You should see some of my coworkers' cats. One of them, she'll be on Zoom and he'll just sit and stare at the camera in the background. <laughs> so there's just like, we're talking on a call and then you just see this like angry cat face glaring at the camera and, and like nobody can focus during the meeting. <laughs> so so let, the only reason I enjoy Zoom. So, anyway. So let's talk about your work because I still don't know exactly what, what does, I know you do stuff to do with data. Yes. <laughs> so what is an analytics consultant and what do you do? Oh boy. Okay. So the simplest way to explain what I do, and, and I, I will first say that if you see the title analytics consultant anywhere else, I mean, it can really honestly mean lots of different things depending on the context. But basically uh, the company I work for, to give you a little background on what they do, they're a global uh, business intelligence and IT consulting firm. And we work with every kind of company in terms of size, industry, um, in the US, um, in the in Europe, in the Asia Pacific area. Um, basically, companies come to us when they have uh, problems with um, their networking. It's most, and that's mostly limited to companies in the central U.S. because the company was started in Oklahoma. That's a whole thing. But yes, Oklahoma is like our company is like this little tech hub in Stillwater, Oklahoma, where OSU is. Um, is there like a little? The is there like a sort of silicon plane going on in, in the middle of Oklahoma <laughs> or something? If it is, it's literally just on the road our company's office is probably located on, which it did. It took me a while to realize after going to Oklahoma for like a few times, the name of the road translates to blood road. I was like, (laughs) who named the streets in Stillwater, Oklahoma? Like somebody please explain to me um, who decided it was okay to name this Sangre Road. Um, (laughs) So... um, and yeah, they got they got famous recently for a couple reasons because our the general counsel at our company is also the mayor of Stillwater, so he was in the news a lot um, when he was trying to instill mask ordinances in Stillwater, and people in the town were basically threatening grocery store workers with like 
their guns because they didn't want to wear a mask in the store, and then he had to rescind it. And so, yeah, because to be honest, to I mean, to be fair, if if anyone is the embodiment of the man, it's a work experience kid on the delicatessen counter at Vons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, seriously. So just some poor grocery store workers in Stillwater, Oklahoma, had to had to deal with that and. For a minute, he uh, he was like on NPR and CNN, and we'd get Slack messages from him, and he's like, "Guys, don't ever run for mayor for anything. It's just, he's like, this is not fun." Well, you stopped um, me just in time. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but um, anyway, so the again, see, I told you this was gonna happen. Short story long. Back to what our company does. So people come to us when they have a lot of data that they generate and they don't know what to do with it. And so as an analytics consultant, I work on the sort of the business intelligence side of things. And I work with um, tools like uh, SQL to basically query databases, put together data sources, um, and basically connect those data sources to this software called Tableau, which you probably hear ads for on NPR, like my, my inner analytics nerd well not really inner i guess it's kind of outer too got really excited when i heard a tableau ad on npr one day and i was like oh this is kind of cool like because sometimes i never know i know sometimes i never know like you'll hear random ads for businesses or products and you're like i have no idea what this is this affects my life in no way but then i like heard the tableau ad and i'm like i use this every day yeah so my sister works for salesforce which is one of the biggest companies in the world and i have not a clue what they do well, they actually, they own Tableau. Oh, okay. They well, there you go. bought them. <laughs> they bought them uh, They also bought Slack ago. recently, I think. Yeah, they're buying, they're buying everything we use at work. So they're kind of like, they're kind of like the Google of workplace tools, I guess. But Tableau is a data visualization software. So you can connect anything from like Excel files, um, Microsoft Access, although I hope I never run into a client who uses an Access database, because that's apparently a nightmare. Um, but lots of big cloud-based databases, and you can take your data and ingest it, and it has this really friendly user interface to help you build um, really cool interactive visualizations. So um, a couple of types of like clients that I've worked with, like I can't say their names, but like I'll, we'll work with like... Um, pharmaceutical companies and like ingest project management data from like a whole bunch of different sources and can we guess their names no no because i really there's you please don't you can guess in like afterwards or in the chat but not not on the podcast i don't want to lose my job (laughs) um simon but yeah no i don't even know if that's a real company is that a real company there's too many pharmaceutical companies like where the first name could just sound like someone i don't think there are enough companies that have people names no. <laughs> like, we were just talking before we recorded about how my cat has a person name. That's true. And I, I think more more companies should be like that. It should be like, Jonathan the Bank. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't it like, wait, does, that, does like Ask Jeeves still exist? Because that, that was like the only thing. But nobody really names their kid Jeeves. Yeah. Unless Not unless you really want to back them into a corner. <laughs> yeah, it's really one of those, what do they call the names that d- d- determine Nominative um, determinism? Right, yeah. Like, people named Dennis supposedly become dentists more often. Like, it's not a one-to-one, but it's, like, statistically significant. Like, if you plug it into Tableau software... Didn't that turn out to be bullshit, though? I thought thought it was, like, a slight correlation that was, like, higher than 
that would be expected. Oh, but, but this is definitely something like we could make in Tableau. You can basically right. make a scatter plot where like one axis is like the name Dennis and the other, like it could be name and then the other would be occupation. And then you put the count of all those combinations on the scatter plot and you just kind of see how it trends. So yes, we can, we can, we can build something like that in Tableau and see how Dennis turns out. So, right. yes. So that is, so that is what I do. So I've, I've worked, um, right now I'm working, um, with a company, um, or a university really that we're looking at all of their donor and alumni data. So we look at, um, we're basically helping them build really comprehensive dashboards to understand how the alumni give to them, um, how often they give, um, when they give, um, basically different methods of understanding like how outreach works best. Um, and then we haven't built these, but they have a data scientist who builds models to understand um, the donor's propensity to give. So if you want, if like somebody hasn't given a gift yet this year to their university, you can, we, we ingest this data into Tableau. And I've been working on this chart the last few weeks to take it from like the very technical terms and like the numerical scores assigned to people and make it very like easy for the people who are going to look at this dashboard to understand. So instead of saying like somebody with a score of five is like probably not going to give, we're going to, I'm going to just probably go, Hey, this is a high risk person, like contact them. Like we just kind of have to figure out a way to not just build these dashboards and visualizations for them, but we have to do it in a way that really helps to make it um, easy for the audience to understand. So right. we ask a lot of like working with clients. Like I had a former coworker who used to call what we do data therapy <laughs> because, <laughs> because at the time we're really just sitting down and talking with clients and being like, okay, like, why do you want to do this? And we usually ask them five times. Cause you know, it's that rule of why five times, like you really dig to the, just because you want this doesn't mean you really need it. Um, you need a good business I reason to do something. Is, is that a rule that I've, that's been in, in play for a while? You go, go five whys deep on anything or something? I haven't heard that. Yeah. So we, one of the things that um, we also do besides like go into clients and help them with their data and build visualizations is we also, um, the company I work for has an enablement and training team. And one of the things, the courses that we offer and teach clients is around uh, data literacy and like data fluency um, and just helping people who aren't maybe very tech savvy or data savvy, but need to get comfortable with data, um, right. un understand these concepts. And so one of the things that we like teach them, and this is just kind of something we use in our work all the time too, is um, teaching people how to ask the right questions and not even ask the right ones, but just know how to ask good questions. And sometimes- um, Like teaching the clients how to ask the questions? Yeah, because some, and, and even their colleagues, so that they, they can understand, like if someone says, I want to see a dashboard that shows me like everybody who's given a gift of a, you know, a hundred dollars, or I want to see everybody who purchased like, you know, $80 widgets over the last month. And, and it's like, okay, well, yeah, I could do that, but what, why? Like, why do you want to see this dashboard? And so, or why do you want to see people who purchased $80 widgets? And they'll go, well, cause you know, I just think widgets are cool. And I'm like, okay, is that a business reason you'd explain to your boss? And they go, well, no, actually I'm in charge of widgets and, um, you know, we're just concerned about how they're performing. Well, why? Like, so we keep it, there's this concept of five wise. I'll see if I can 
find a find a link, but it was something we just we used recently. That, I mean, that feels like something developed. that a, a young kid does to their parents, and it just ends up with them exactly. Going, I said so. And then somebody was yeah. smart enough to be like, "Let's call this something fancy," and then have consultants use it. The link I'm pinging you is uh, it's five wise getting to the root of a problem quickly. Um, but you're right. This is to me. This is like something that a small child would ask their parents, like, "Why is the sky?" blue like why why and the parents keep going because 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 so i feel like i was manipulated now extra manipulated because i finally started using noom i don't know if you guys you've heard of that i'm sure right yes yeah i tried it for a minute and a half but i've uh, i've uh, been in therapy for long enough to be like yeah i get this this is what my therapist karen makes me do and yeah her name's really karen like i'm not just calling her karen um, so poor, I know. Pe- poor people named karen right now right <laughs> But when I first signed up for it, it you know it asked me why uh, I wanted to use it or why I wanted to lose weight or something. And then, then after that, they're like, no, but really why? Or, or that, and then after I said that, it said why again. I'm like, what? Come on, it's just yeah. I just want to like, eat a little better. It's it don't this doesn't need to be a whole get get to some you know deep. Uh, oh, that's interesting though. Yeah. Anyway, this this is either a plug like or the opposite. Like it takes five ways to noon. stop you from sort of just hand waving through over the truth i guess yeah yeah (laughs) Yeah, for us it just helps us to better suss out what clients really want and sometimes it's that idea of like people people may not really know what they want they think they have an idea and then it and then over the course of asking them why so to speak this many times and like teasing it out of them they might realize well, I said I wanted this, but oh, actually, what I really need is this. And it's just a, it's just like a mechanism like we use to really help dig down to get at what they need. So like the group I'm working with right now is just really hung up on the fact that they love using Excel and they want like these very tabular reports with all this information in them because they're going to hand it off to people to go call alumni. And, and part of me is like, well, why? Is a tableau is not really meant to just make a bunch of tables full of data for you. It's meant for you to like interact with your data and uncover insights and understand it better. And then, um, but when we learn that ultimately they still need that sort of printout, I said, well, what else? I mean, how else would you know if you're just looking at like a full list of data that's hundreds and hundreds or even thousands of rows long? Like, how would you know maybe if the class of 1997, like how they're on track with their participation rates or how much they gave? And they're like, well, we wouldn't, we'd have to do this. And I'm like, I can do that in milliseconds for you in Tableau. So we, we've created a dashboard now where there's like visual high level summaries and they can click through it and then it generates that output or Excel file of what they need to maybe hand off to someone to go contact alumni. So there's, there's other like cool concepts of like, yeah, just, it's, it's just ways of helping people get to understand their data faster and understand it better and help people to have aha moments. So. Yes, that's that's pretty much what I spend my day doing is trying to understand what people really want and then hoping they go, oh, yes, that's what I needed. Thank you. So it makes my day if I get a, oh, my gosh, this is so helpful from them because yeah. it can take hours and hours and days to get a really good dashboard in place. So, so have you become like a data, data or data? I don't know. Now I forgot how I say it. A data snob um, in the course of working in this field, like when you encounter data in the real world like I, i'm always looking at worldometers.info which mm-hmm. aggregates all this uh covid data like ever since it started ever since covid started i would check yes. that every day and i'm not even sure if that's the best aggregate or the well, best displayed 
Together. It's funny you mentioned that one because that's the one that when I'm on Zoom calls with some of my my previous team members, my old boss Eric will bring it up and he'll be like, "What are the COVID numbers today?" And he brings up Worldometer. So, so okay, that, so that's so that's pretty reputable. Well. Yes, <laughs> but we do a bunch of us. We do have like a. Um, I would say we do trade probably dumpster fire emojis a lot at work. <laughs> like when we're looking at client data, we're like, oh, did you see this? Like, or people will post that, um, when they're, when they're looking at, at client files, but that, but that's our job. And I think clients know that, that like they're coming to us because they know their data needs, needs some TLC right. in a way. So, I mean, do you ever, do they ever hand off this, this data that they don't know what to do with and you, you do everything you can and you're like, this is just useless garbage, but still you have to pay us or does that not really happen? <laughs> I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've been on, I've been on just a few long-term projects, but essentially like it, it depends on how much power we have to fix the data. Like we can, it's kind of like you can, you know, lead a horse to water, but you can't teach him to drink. Like we can show them like, Hey, like we don't have the power to fix these things in your data, but we recommend like you fix these naming conventions and you fix these data types and you restructure the, the data in such a way. And they could be like, well, we, we don't want to do that. And I'm like, well, okay. Or we can't do that. And I'm like, well, if, if you don't have the time or the resources to do it, then you need to understand like we can't make a dashboard for you. Like we just have to tell them like what the downstream effects are. And so we'll right. just say, well, we can't, we can't make this dashboard for you because the data needs to be structured in this way. And if it's not, like, that's just not going to happen. So we'll, so we, we, we don't ever say no, but we'll just say like, here are your alternatives. Like this is, we, we can basically work with them within whatever limitations they have. But usually if a client is coming to us, they're coming to us because they're like, I need help fixing it, but I don't know what to do. And so we'll help walk them through that process. Right. Um, but yeah, sometimes, yeah, there's that saying just in general, if it's gar garbage in, garbage out. Like if your data is just yeah, garbage, yeah. like it's not going to be the, the end result isn't going to be like magically beautiful. So, but you haven't had to deliver that news too often to clients. I don't, I'm trying to think. Um, no, I mean, lately it's been more like, um, hey, the data's not in this column. I can't build this dashboard. I can't even mock up a fake version of one with placeholder data because there are no values in the field. And right. so they'll then it kind of like puts pressure on them to say, oh, oh, you don't have what you need to do your job and we're paying you by the hour. <laughs> okay. Like, let yeah. me, let me get on this. So sometimes it, it just adds pressure to the situation. Um, but we also work with clients who um, usually have a pretty good idea of what their like business strategy or capabilities are. So we're not necessarily working with the people who are ultimately going to use the dashboard, but we're working with the people who are taking those requests in and like processing them. And then we're helping to build them with them. So sometimes we don't always have to be the ones to deliver the bad news to the end users, but we do have to help the person who is the messenger, just like provide them with backup information. Like, Hey, I know that they asked for this, but we, that we can't, and this is why. We've got so, back, so just right? to take a yeah. step back, how sure. did you, like, what was your route into this job? What was your degree? Hmm. What, how did you end up doing this? Oh my god! <laughs> so I was a Japanese major in college. Okay, um, <laughs> that tracks. N yep. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I've always liked languages, and um, while analytics, <laughs> it's really, I guess, the vocabulary maybe is in of itself. A language. Um, 
I was always really interested in, uh, well, I guess when I studied abroad in Tokyo, my junior year of college, I took some um, international marketing uh, and consumer behavior classes in um, the wing of the Japanese university I studied at, like their international center. I took classes mostly in Japanese and with the rest of the university, but there were a few that I did in English. And and I always liked the concept of like being able to um, work with people from different countries and different cultures to solve business problems that maybe even none of us had any real background in. Like I remember being on a project where it was myself, a colleague from Germany, and a Japanese student, and we had to figure out how to market a Japanese camera to Vietnam. And so it was like all these people from different cultures and countries trying to market a product they're not familiar with and try to market it to a market they're not familiar with. So I always like that aspect of like, um, like this cross-cultural communication and trying to like really get at the root of like how to solve these weird complex problems. And so when I got out of school, um, I ended up working as an intern at Deloitte for an accounting professor I had one semester in undergrad. Um, didn't like that. Ended up quitting, going back to Japan to be a nanny for a U.S. diplomat for a year, which was a very <laughs> roundabout way I found that. I had a Japanese professor like six months out of college message me and he's like, I don't know what you're up to, but that sounds like you. And it was this single mother U.S. diplomat who was like, does anybody at like Georgetown have um, any recent graduates or students who like speak Japanese and have childcare experience and like want to take a year to like come be my nanny in Japan? And I was like, I meet all these requirements, like sign me up. So I went to Japan okay. on a, yeah, I went to Japan on a house servant visa. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, they don't fuck around, do they? <laughs> no, they really don't. Um, because she had, she and her children had diplomatic passports. Um, she's a foreign service officer with the State Department. But I went on a house servant visa. And if you're not familiar, house servant visas are sometimes used in Japan to bring people to Japan who aren't really going to be domestic workers. Um, they're going to work in hostess clubs or other right. like sex clubs in Tokyo. Sort of trafficking-ish. Yes. So I got detained at the airport when I arrived. Oh <laughs> and they like kept me in a room for two hours. And I had like remembered... Um, how to like say in Japanese, I like, like I'm a diplomat's nanny. <laughs> and they were like, what? <laughs> Is that a vampire weekend song? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, I, what was it? It was like, which means like, I'm going to be working as an American diplomat's like babysitter. And I just remember they kept like craning their necks and looked really confused and it didn't help. And you're like, have I just accidentally said that I'm breastfeeding a diplomat? (laughs) I know. I was like, what? And she, she hadn't even landed yet. So like, she wasn't even physically, like I landed two hours before her. So that was a fun little experience. And then I think once her flight landed, they let me leave this, windowless room at the airport. Um, but I did that for a year and um, took care of her kids and took some classes. Um, Temple University in Philly has a campus in Tokyo. So I, um, for, for fun, took a couple classes there thinking like, what do I want to do? Because like, just clearly having a degree in Japanese is not useful. Um, and so I, I started looking more into like marketing and organizational behavior classes again, because I really like that. And then I applied to grad school while I was in Japan, but I only applied to grad schools in the UK. 
because I liked living overseas and I heard UK universities were much cheaper. So that is true. I, yes. And, and fewer I, languages and, to learn as well. Yeah. And um, I, uh, I ended up going to Oxford for a year and got my master's in management research. So I got to do more like deep dive studying and marketing and statistics and consumer behavior. And then um, the recession hit. And then for like a few years, I was doing like freelance market research work. Um, and that one of those jobs brought me out to California. And then I got a full-time job doing marketing and market research for an industrial supply company down in Santa Fe Springs. That was like my first job in LA. And then um, I got fired from that because they used to have background timers on our computer programs to time how fast we did certain tasks. And my <laughs> average was two minutes too slow. So. God. I know. Yeah. You didn't know that was even running? No. And sometimes you did. And some, and usually if it wasn't good, like your managers would come up to you and they'd always say like, oh, Sarah, we have some feedback for you. And they'd bring you into a room with no windows and they'd sit you <laughs> down and tell you everything you did wrong. And so the you first spend a lot of time I, in windowless rooms. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I swear to God, guys, I'm not, I'm not crazy. I'm just, uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, they would tell you like everything you did wrong and, it was actually kind of a blessing because I was I was then like un, I was unemployed for a bit and then I was at a friend's birthday dinner and then heard about this job at an ad agency and advertising was always like a little through line in some of the classes I had done and I ended up starting there as an account coordinator but then there was an opening on their analytics team and I finagled my way onto the team which at the time in hindsight it was led by two women which is pretty rare in analytics like eight years ago to have so many women in leadership positions um, around in this field. And they were like, oh, you have a little experience with one of the tools we use, which was SPSS. It was a statistical tool I used in grad school. And I was like, yeah. And like, I went on YouTube to remind, like, remember certain terms. You know, if you do that before an interview right, yeah. where you like definitely watch YouTube videos of things that they're like, you must have skills in this. And I'm like, yep, going to YouTube my way back into this software. <laughs> so... <laughs> um, Luckily, I, I worked for them, and then that kind of started me just kind of moving to other companies where the last company I was at before Interworks, which is where I work now, um, was an ad tech company. Um, they're now called Epsilon, but that's where I learned SQL, and my job there was using SQL to query all kinds of data we had access to about what people did on the internet, so what sites they visited, um, geographically, like where they were pinging from, um, offline data that we ingested and matched to their online profiles, and we would build audiences to serve ads to. So that was my, that was my foray into analytics and analytics tools was about seven years ago when I started working there. Okay. So, and then obviously it leads logically straight into stand-up comedy. Yes. Uh, when I got that job, it was the first time I had like a little extra money and a little extra time. And so I took some writing classes and then I was like, why am I in LA? What am I doing? And I also needed to cope with um, some other reasons. I ended up in therapy. I'm very comfortable talking about this, but like I, my first stand-up set was about my struggles with bulimia. So everyone's like, and I remember I did one of those like comedy classes, which I know if you ask a comic, they're like, oh, you did a class to learn stand-up? Because everybody has 
You I, go, I mean, you guys are silent right now, so no. Oh, no, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah, no. It's, it's, it's a funny thing that everyone totally accepts that it's fine for improv and never for stand-up. It's just a weird... But also, yeah, uh, I, I remember starting with that attitude, but also then looking back, I, I started doing stand-up when I was a student, so everything that people get from comedy classes, I just got from the student comedy, like, uh community so it was just it was the same deal like i don't think you really learn anything from those classes except just how to get some experience being on stage and have a supportive group of people who are learning at the same time as you yeah and and for me it was just like it was learning for me i just needed to like have a an environment that held me accountable to writing jokes and like right. staying focused and like oh if i have to pay this person like, like, oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna write, like, because I, I always, like, I just know I need external accountability to get stuff like that done. So, um, so yeah, I did, I did stand up processing, like, kind of like part of my my recovery, and then yeah, and then I kept doing that pretty consistently um, until I got the job I now have, because the job up until COVID, um, I was traveling a lot for work, a mm-hmm. lot. So that was uh, the first six months I was at Interworks. I was actually traveling the country as a Tableau trainer. So I would go to like Boston or Chicago or I think at one point I went to Iowa. And, and like I remember driving to the airport one morning there like on my way back. And there was like a deer slowly crossing the highway. And I'm like, this is not this is this is not normal. <laughs> like, like I'm from Connecticut and we see deer, but it was like four o'clock in the morning and there's just deer like hanging out on the highway and there's like nobody else around. And I'm like, this is, this feels like a bad horror movie that's about to happen. <laughs> so. So have you um, not been, have you, have you been doing any like zoom standup shows at all during COVID or not? Yeah. So a couple, a couple weeks ago, um, I did, um, a storytelling show like, uh, so Brandon and I both were on it. Um, it was for the Greater Los Angeles Mensa group. Um, mm-hmm. So we did a Zoom show for me- Mensons, Mensites. What do you call members of Mensa as like a collective? Uh, dorks, I think. Is <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> um, and it was great because, you know, like none of them had their cameras on, but that was kind of expected. <laughs> Right. So, Wait, are you are you in Mensa or do you no no do one of uh so one of our our friends is and they do these like uh, events every year and normally they're in person and um this was the first time I was asked to do it so but yeah I haven't I honestly I don't think I've performed since like late 2019 because of my yeah. work travel so and the I Zoom stuff it. I don't know I I've seen I've tried to support other friends' shows but it just still seems awkward i don't know yeah Matt, matt's done a few of them i've just i've stepped in as in the audience in a couple and not of matt's but um yeah why would you i, I just <laughs> well because if i'm about to say something bad i'm not gonna say it about your but yeah i just don't i just don't get how anybody thinks it scratches the itch that you want comedy to scratch you know but i don't know i i can i think i've had some fun on some and also some comics are getting better at doing them and learning different things you can do on zoom that you couldn't do live like you know fucking around with av stuff you know you can like play in music and video right. and things like that that's easy to do when you're just doing the whole thing off one computer yeah but yeah it's not the same no no yeah because a lot of times they'll say like people would want us to come off mute and like laugh and i'm like but that's just going to mess up your audio and then you're not going to be able to hear yourself i'm like i can't so but this the storytelling was fun and it was about i it just kind of forced me to 
like sit down and write again because um, they, they're like we don't want stand up but it can be funny and it has to be PG-13 because people's kids might watch so um, I, I did it about a game show I, I was on in October that I recorded and like my experience doing that during COVID so oh what was, was the my, game show uh, it was Masterminds on Game Show Network um, I had never heard of it or seen it until I auditioned for it <laughs> is that is that also hosted by Brooke um... Brooke Burns it is. Yes. Yes. I feel like she is does it, another trivia Is it related show. to Mastermind without w- without the S in the UK? No. Or, okay. No, but it comes up a lot in Google because that would confuse some of my coworkers when they're like, how do I watch the show that you were on? I'm like, I, you don't need to because I didn't win. So but it's, not <laughs> oh. the UK, it's not the UK show. <laughs> oh, wait. This one has Ken Jennings also. I forgot. Yes. Yeah. What, yeah. what is he? Yeah. Did you compete against him then? Yes. So... The, the way the show works is um, it's like three three challengers and then three masterminds. And it's it's usually like a pool of people like Ken is one of them. And he's he's usually on almost every show. And then there's. Um, oh, hang on. Is this is this an adaptation? There's another UK game show called Eggheads. And I'm it's wondering probably... it's starting to feel a bit like it might be a US version of that. Yeah, I mean, con- Wikipedia. I'm like considering like we steal a lot of our ideas from you guys in the UK. Like, I wouldn't <laughs> be surprised. <laughs> it's also it's also strange how similar it is, at least your description, to the chase, which is funny because Brooke hosted the first US adaptation of that, but not the current one. But the current one does have Ken. Yeah, it's so she, I remember seeing her do the first one. Yeah, so she she hosts, and it's like three challengers and three masterminds, and there's. Um, there's three rounds plus the final round. And so like everybody plays like the first round, you just buzz in and answer the question on your iPad. The second round, you have to buzz in and answer within a, and it's like the first challenger to buzz in and the first mastermind to buzz in answer. And then you, there's penalties. If you get the points wrong, I mean, you question wrong, you lose points. And then the third round, you're down to two challengers and two masterminds. Um, and the two challengers go up against each other to see who can answer and get the most points right in like 60 seconds. And then they do the same with the masterminds. And then it's the mastermind versus the challenger. And if the challenger is able to, I think, either tie or beat the the mastermind in terms of the number of questions out of five that they get right, then they get like $10,000. Um, and my show... I didn't actually know. I didn't make it that far, and I didn't know how it ended until I watched it. And I was really annoyed that the guy that made it to the finals, like the question he got wrong that cost him the ten grand, was like Nancy Kerrigan won which medal at the nineteen ninety four Winter Olympics in Lillehammer? And I'm like, it's uh, Tanya Harding here. It's silver. And he was like confidently writing gold. And I'm like, no. Like, who did win? I mean, Tanya was disqualified, right? Who who won gold? It wasn't an American uh, at all, right? Oksana uh, Bayul. Oh, okay. Gold. Right. And then Nancy Kerrigan came in second. And then there was a French woman who got third. I was okay. like, I was 11 in 1994. Like, I remember all the ice skating things. I was in middle school <laughs> and I wasn't doing anything else. Like, of course I'm going to know this. And of course I didn't make it that far. So. so you never had to face directly off against Ken Jennings? No. Oh. And and it was and it was funny because, I mean, Andy, I know you were on Jeopardy. Like, and I don't, and, and I know you did very well. I don't know if you ever felt like this, but people ask me, they're like, well, what do you, isn't that an easy question? Didn't you know the answer to that? And I said, you have to like look in a certain direction. You have the buzzer in your hand. Like you're just, there's so many other things you have to think so about. Many. 
Yeah. And and so like the the processing power, like your brain processing power is like slightly affected because you're not sitting at home in your living room watching. Yeah. I, de- I definitely had some, I just forgot what category I was answering for a couple times and gave answers that like, of course that wouldn't be in that category. The category is masks. Why would the answer be um, the Count of Monte Cristo? Or, you know, like, right. And if you're, if you're paying attention at home, you're probably thinking the same thing, but there's so much more happening on set. And then also for Game Show Network, I, I did a, sh- a game show for them called America Says. It was sort of like a um, family feud, basically. Oh yeah, I think they like, were, yeah, I remember seeing that their ads come up. Yeah, and and that was much more. I mean, maybe because it isn't trivia, that's the reason for this. But um, it, it was so much more important that we have high energy, and that's just like I'm like, let me just concentrate on playing this game. But like, you have to think about so many more things, like making sure you're jumping high enough when they announce <laughs> yeah. the right answer. <laughs> no, I don't want this part of it at all. You, you should get scored on like achievement and style points. Yeah, I, I'm kind of glad. I'm, I'm assuming that the Game Show Network is like this across the board, but it's almost impossible to find the episode of the show that I was on. Like, they don't make it easy to go view past episodes, so that's good because I, I don't stand by it at all. But it, are, are, do you have a link you can send to friends at all to view? No, I'd have to go back to the. I'd have to go back to the website and check. The closest I've gotten is like my parents DVR'd the episode back in Connecticut, so I can right. log into their cable account. <laughs> Like, like set up a bootleg, like, um, you know, like a tripod with my phone and like record it (laughs) from my monitor, but I can't, I can't like find a link to send anybody, um, with, with the episode on it. Not that I, not that I know of, but it's fine. But it was so funny. Like this, the whole, I'd never done a game show before. And like, I had a friend refer me back in April. Who's, who's one of those. I don't know if you guys have friends that just always audition for game shows. Like it's just their thing. I don't. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I, I got a friend, Andy Wood. Yeah, I, <laughs> I. I still in my in my Gmail inbox. I just mark things unread until I've like that's my only to do list is just whether I've. So right now, let me look back. Um, I have an email that is unread, as in this is in my to do list um, <laughs> from the Game Show Network. From uh, what year is this? Oh, I can't find it quickly, but yes, I I intended to also. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, apply to be on that show probably in 2019 or something oh yeah calling yeah. all tri- calling all trivia buffs um yeah june 4th of last summer never wrote back i think once you get on a couple so, of those lists you're just they just get shared amongst all the show or it's probably the same casting people for half of those shows yeah yeah i'm sure and i'm sure i wouldn't be allowed to uh yeah, well actually no would- i did I wrote back in November and I said, am I too late for this? Also, I was just on Jeopardy. So does yeah, that disqualify me? And they, they just didn't, probably, they didn't, yeah, didn't write back yeah, at all. Yeah. They ghosted you. Yeah. Because the rule was they, you, can't be on, you can't be on anything for five years until you're on the show. Five? So the, wow. Yeah. And there, it was funny because the day that I was there, um, the, so at the, the lot where they, they shot this, it was in Silmar and they turned one of the sound stages into like the green room. And so we could all spread out. And one of the guys there was was on Jeopardy. He's like a TV writer, something on ABC. I don't remember. We couldn't have our phones. So like nobody had anything to like, we didn't even have pens. Like they just wouldn't let us like do anything. And so he, but he yeah. was on Jeopardy a few years ago. And um, yeah, he was like, yeah, I was on six years ago. So they were like, it's totally okay. Like nobody will remember you. <laughs> like you can be on the show. <laughs> so... Yeah, he was he was he was there and then most of the people came from LA, but there was like one guy who flew down from San Francisco to do it and another guy who drove up from San Diego. But everybody else was local. 
Yeah, that's how they were. They've been trying to cast Jeopardy the same way to sort of reduce the COVID risk by flying people in from other places. Yeah, yeah. But I remember it was a pretty lengthy process because, like, they still, like, I think I applied in April online through my friend's referral. And it was like, you have a call with one of the casting producers and they, like, are like, okay, does this person sound crazy? Do they have good energy? Okay, they seem normal. Like, and then I had to take, like, two online tests and then do a Skype audition and then do a background check. I was like, I've never had a job interview like this intense. Yeah, that's... And usually those... You said the most you can win is is 10 grand, right? Yeah. And I was like, that's that's before taxes. I was like, this isn't... And if you make it to the final round where you get to play someone like Ken Jennings, um, you get a thousand. So the most you can... Or no, yeah. And so you get a thousand. So, But the most you can win any episode is 10. So really, it's just like a $9,000 bonus once you... Yeah. They, they the, just churn the through so many of those games for that network. Like, yeah, for, for the one I was on, it's a team game, four of us. I think the best case scenario would have been 15000 which split four ways and taking taxes out. You're talking about like, I don't know, probably like 1800 bucks each or something. Yeah, I was like, it's not, <laughs> if it's we had not a Which lot. is just a little bit more than the after minimum for being on TV. Yeah, right? <laughs> that's a great point. That's great. Not yeah, to trash the game show network. I love you guys. Uh, no, but, yeah. but I remember thinking like they kept saying like you're so if you're so excited like you're gonna win the ten grand like what are you gonna do and I'm like I don't know like it's like my, when my grandma died she left me ten grand I bought new furniture because <laughs> I moved and my old apartment had bed bugs like that was how that like that's what you can do with ten grand is like move and buy new furniture. <laughs> Plus, it's like. It, I had to answer that question at the end of my Jeopardy run. And like in COVID times, like I'm not going to splurge with this. This is just going to go in my bank account in case yeah. the world falls apart and I can't get work or anything. Like, just... <laughs> yeah. They were like, cause they were like, well, so what do you do if you win? And I'm like, well, it, I said in the before times, I probably would have said like, I'm going to fly to the Maldives before it's underwater. Like, I, right. I don't know, but I'm like, yeah, no, I'm not so sure. Like, so. Oh, speaking of cataclysmic Earth events, um, I've got a story here for you guys. Ooh, what do you got? I'll put a link in the show notes. Uh, the end of Neanderthals is linked to the flipping of Earth's magnetic poles, according to a study. Ooh. So the flipping of the Earth's magnetic poles together with a drop in solar activity 42,000 years ago could have generated an apocalyptic environment that may have played a role in a major in a major events, in major events ranging from the extinction of megafauna to the end of the Neanderthals, researchers say, the Earth's magnetic field acts as a protective shield against damaging cosmic radiation, but when the poles switch, as has occurred many times in the past, the protective shield weakens dramatically and leaves the planet exposed to high-energy particles. One temporary flip of the poles, known as the Lachamp excursion, happened 42,000 years ago and lasted for about 1,000 years. That's pretty recent. I didn't know that was that common. Yeah, I thought, um, it, I thought we were talking like millions of years. Right, yeah. that's uh, Previous work fo- found little evidence that the event had a profound impact on the planet, possibly because the focus had not been on the period during which the poles were actually shifting, researchers say. Now scientists say the flip, together with a period of, slow sol- of low solar activity, could have been behind a vast array of climactic, climatic and environmental phenomena with dramatic ramifications. It probably would have seemed like the end, of, the end of days, said Professor Chris Turney of the University of New South Wales and co-author of the study. The team have collectively termed this period the Adams event, a nod to Douglas Adams, author of Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, in which 42 was said to be, okay, yeah, the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything, since this was 42,000 years ago. Uh, writing in the journal Science, Tur- Turney and his colleagues describe how they carried out radiocarbon analyses of the rings of ancient 
kauri trees preserved in northern New Zealand wetlands, some of which were more than 42,000 years old. That allowed them to track over the time the rise in carbon-14 levels in the atmosphere produced by increasing levels of high-energy cosmic radiation reaching the Earth during that Lachamp excursion. As a result, they were able to date the atmospheric changes in more detail than offered by previous records, such as mineral deposits. Then they examined numerous records and materials from all over the world, including from lakes and ice cores, and found that a host of major environmental changes occurred in the same time as uh, the carbon-14 levels peaked. So they saw this massive growth of the ice sheet over North America, uh, tropical rain belts in the West Pacific shifting dramatically at that point, and then also wind belts in the Southern Ocean and a drying out in Australia. So it sounds, yeah, it sounds pretty bleak 42,000 years ago. Uh, the researchers also used a model to examine how the chemistry of the atmosphere might change if the Earth's magnetic field was lost and there was a prolonged period of low solar activity, which uh, would have further reduced Earth's protection against cosmic radiation. Ice core records suggest such dips in solar activity, known as the Grand Solar Minima, coincided with the Lachamps excursion. I, I never knew that those two things were separate, or were together, rather. I always thought, like, if you'd asked me this time, like, an hour ago, I would have said that the Lachamps excursion <laughs> and the Grand right. Solar Minima, were, there's no way they would have happened at the same time. We were just talking about this last week, weren't we? Yeah, yeah, we were, yeah. You, you were like... <laughs> Over drinks on, on Zoom. You, you were like, remember the Grand Solar Minima? minima and, then, and then at some point later, the Lachamps excursion. And, and I, we were all like, yeah, of course. I remember right. those two things being distinct events. Yep. Uh, well, this was your story. I forgot you, you suggested this. Yeah, it was sent in by, uh, <laughs> by, by listener Matt Kirshen. <laughs> oh, that's great. I want to know, though, if that was 42,000 years ago, like, when are we due for the next pole flipping? Like, right. Because I was looking at the Guardian the Guardian article, and it says the Earth's magnetic field is weakened by 9% over the past 170 years. And, the, and it goes, researchers say another flip could be on the cards. And I just want to be like, how soon? Has anyone asked the researchers, like, when Ooh. is this going to happen next? Yeah. That's slightly disturbing. And, like, are we accelerating it with you know, human activity. Like, I want to believe there's some stuff like that that's out of our hands so we can just be like, well, yeah, the climate is changing, but that's just uh -huh. what Earth Earth's doing its thing, you know? Uh, listen to Steve Ross as well, It'd by the way. Nice if it were. Just sorry to interrupt talk over there, but Steve Ross also sent in a, another version of the story about ancient trees showing that when the Earth's magnetic field last flipped, that was the NPR mm. version of it. They went with trees as the big, the big part of this story rather than the Neanderthals. Right. So oh. yeah, the start. Oh, sorry. And go ahead, Sarah. I was going to say NPR went with the tree root. That that makes sense. Yeah, like, that's their right. that's their jam. <laughs> it's the important shit. <laughs> so uh, the article continues, um, as well as the environmental changes potentially accelerating the growth of ice sheets and contributing to the extinction of Australian megafauna. The team suggests they could also be linked to the emergence of red ochre handprints. The suggestion being that humans may have used the pigment as a sunscreen against the increased levels of ultraviolet radiation hitting the Earth as a result of the depletion of ozone, which is pretty amazing. For well, I guess they are early humans. So I should give them some credit for being smart, but like you wouldn't think you'd be able to figure out the the causation there and, and a way to combat it. You know? Oh, like make them your own sunscreen. Like them knowing, oh, it's getting hot outside and my skin's changing. I should, I should protect it. 
like backgrounds. Well, I guess, yeah, I guess I was thinking of it being more like a longer term thing where you wouldn't see how it's correlated. But if you're just getting actively burned, I guess you would look for some way to stop that <laughs> to cover from yourself. happening. Yeah, it's not just getting cancer 10 years down the road or something. Yeah. Um, so let's see. They also suggest the rise in the use of caves by our ancestors around this time, as well as the rise in cave art, might be down to the fact that underground spaces offered shelter from the harsh conditions. So the situation may have also boosted competition, potentially contributing to the end of the Neanderthals. Yikes. Um, yeah. While we're talking about ancient peoples, I just found this other story on the BBC while I was looking through stuff. Uh, the mystery of India's lake of skeletons. What? Ooh. Also, we were talking about horror earlier as well. It just seems appropriate. High in the Indian Himalayas, a remote lake nestled in a <laughs> snowy valley is strewn with hundreds of human skeletons. Awesome. Oh, my. Oh, this picture. Yikes. Jeez. Yeah, that's. Yeah, six, I guess. Six to eight hundred people have been found at the site. What? Tell ha me more. Tell me more. <laughs> yeah, they. So the, the theories are one old theory associates the remains to an Indian king, his wife and their attendants all of whom perished in a blizzard some 870 years ago. How many attendants did this person? 600 yeah. to 800 attendants? Uh, another suggests that some of the remains are of Indian soldiers who tried to invade Tibet in 1841 and were beaten back. More than 70 of them were then forced to find their way home over the Himalayas and died on their way. Oh my gosh. My favorite part of this, Matt, of the link you, you sent is that there's a paragraph that says, earlier studies of skeletons have found most of the people who died were tall. <laughs> <laughs> and then it just says most of them were middle-aged adults between 35 and 40 there were no babies or children some of them were elderly women all were of reasonably good health i just love how they were like they were tall yeah. and then they died <laughs> like how is that a reason for them to die and how how good health can they be when they're skeletons right yeah how healthy is a skeleton <laughs> the, the dates on that is what surprises me the most because the theory seems to be it's either some something that happened 870 years ago or in 1841. <laughs> it's a really is, broad range. That's quite a big range. Surely, can they not date any better than that? I would have thought. I mean, otherwise, how does anybody ever solve a crime? Like, that's, yeah, that's a pretty big swing. Like, do they just not have the right forensic tools in that part of the world, or? I don't know. But, yeah, I don't, I don't know. But that, I mean, that's a big range between, like, sort of the Middle Ages versus things that we have photographs of. were there photographs yet one with the earliest photographs uh i think there are some like daguerreotypes from around the civil war i want to say like yeah mid 1800s is probably daguerre making his types <laughs> um probably i'm guessing not 1841 but i i don't know but also at what point does here we this go become... world's oldest oh. surviving photo was in 1826 oh I'm, or I'm 1827 or possibly 870 years ago. We don't know. There's no way to know. <laughs> <laughs> and it's buried at the bottom of that lake. Yeah. <laughs> like... What What is the 1826 picture a picture of? Uh, let me see. I think it's in. Better not be a dick. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. It is. It is a still life of some plaster figure plaster figures, and. Uh, and what looks like some kind of gourd and a photo frame. Uh, hang on, I, I'll put that in. This isn't the view from the window at Legras, is it? No. Oh, hang on. No, no, wait, sorry. That's the 1837 world's earliest reliably dated daguerreotype. 
Okay. This one from 1827, taken captured using a technique using known as heliography. Mm. I feel it like I've heard that term before. One of a kind figure. It doesn't. It's very. There's not much to it. If you look at the, uh, I'll also link to the history of photography wiki here. They have a colorized version of that, which seems like cheating, but um, yeah. yeah, it's a view out someone's window, and uh, the colorized version does look pretty cool. But again, that's just someone painting in. <laughs> I don't know how you can. Uh, uh-huh. And the world. Guess what those? And then there's the world's oldest self-portrait, which is from 1839. And it's oh. Robert Cornelius, and he looks a little bit like a fawn. <laughs> <laughs> look at look at the link. It's the third picture down. We'll, oh, we'll put it in the show one? notes. Okay. But he has he definitely has kind of Mr. Tumnus hair. Oh, oh yes. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. So is this technically also, the first selfie? <laughs> I think it is. Um, yeah. Well, certainly the first surviving... You have to be holding it? Well, the first photographic selfie. I mean, you could argue that there are painted self-portraits that predate that by centuries. Millennia, even. Right, but if, but if we're talking photographic selfies, this would be the this would be the first one. Yep. Oh, and then the first photo of a president. Guess who it is, guys? I mean, you can also scroll down, but... Oh, hang on, hang on. Uh, I reckon it's going to predate Lincoln. Yes. He looks like a ghost. <laughs> okay, which president looked like a ghost? Uh, John Quincy. Oh, sorry. We <laughs> had to say John Quincy. <laughs> oh, there's the fo- first photo of war. Which that that would be the Crimean War. It is the Crimean War. I mean, I'm looking at. The, I'm not trying to act like I knew that off the top. <laughs> so I'm looking at. This is not in my wheelhouse, Jeopardy wise. But um, I forgot how we got down this photography road. Uh, it was the skeleton age. Oh, there's oh, the right. first photo of a tornado, the oldest aerial photo. <laughs> oh my gosh, I love this page. This is great. First photo of the Earth from the Moon. Well, we know when that would be. I mean, that's pretty. 1966. Yeah. It's it's not. It's from a lunar orbiter rather than the surface of the Moon. So it's not. Oh, okay. Now, first digital photo of a president is Obama, which I'm surprised digital photography was definitely throughout all of W's tenure, a pretty common thing. Yeah, that seems kind of late. Yeah, that's, hang on, that's, that's in 2009. Yeah. I I remember people having digital cameras when I was at university. Yeah. In the, like, late 90s, early 2000s. Definitely. Someone was just lazy at the White House and didn't want to... Yeah, hang on, that must be like the first digital official portrait, because someone must have just snapped a president with a... like, on stage with a digital camera, surely. Oh, right, right, true. Um, By the way, back to this skeleton story, at what point do... I'm just fascinated by the fact that they just leave these skeletons there. Like, either it's a thing that's sort of worth gathering up or it's a thing that's like sacred and you leave it alone but it's it seems like it's in this weird like if it was old enough then do you just consider it straight up archaeology and if it's 1840s it's still like in the realm of like forensics or something and you have to like well that's i think the risk is that when it's potentially only a couple of hundred years old that means there is still a risk that it'll come to life on the full moon (laughs) right (laughs) 
<laughs> you don't want to disturb disturb yeah. the bodies. Yeah, and so until you get an accurate date on this thing. But yeah, it says that some of the they did carbon date some of the bodies, and they said some of them date back to twelve hundred years ago. So it, maybe it's like a mix of bodies from a period oh. of time that they maybe were like, like the- well. There were people here 1,200 years ago. Let's just keep throwing dead bodies here. Like, I don't... <laughs> Maybe it's like the Japanese suicide forest or something. Maybe it's just a good place to go die. Now people know it is the dying place. Just so. what, back in the day. Back yeah. either 150 or um, almost a millennium ago. That's when it happened. Sure. That's what they did. Um, but while we are talking about going to places and things in space and the like, we probably should at some point discuss the latest mars lander because that's happened since oh we my last God. recorded an episode we, oh and that's gosh, yeah. probably the biggest <laughs> science story of the year so far yeah i actually have um on tuesday after work i'm actually i have a lot of coworkers that are really we're excited about the rover landing and i have a couple friends that work at jpl so they're gonna do like a q a for some of my coworkers on tuesday which will be fun nice i yeah. think was this the this was launched it's last last um fall or summer. Yeah, that sounds right. What was the one was it Insight that we were on site at JPL for the launch? You were I wasn't. It was a was it Curiosity? Out? No, it was it was Insight. Yeah, that they launched that's right, May 2018. Um okay. I was making sure I wasn't part of, not that I was part of that, but um, yes, the uh, Perseverance rover touched down on, it's, it's been on Mars for 10 souls, which are Earth days, not Mars days, right? Or is that Mars days? Oh, when, when, it's the, when they say a soul, does that mean an Earth day or a That's a, that's a, uh, a soul Mars is day. a day on Mars. Mars day, yeah. okay. 10 yeah. Mars days. And um, I haven't actually done a very deep dive into the pictures it's sent back yet. Have you guys? Oh, there's some great pictures. Yeah. There's some of the best pictures taken on Mars. I mean, like better than most people have ever managed. Yeah. And then they got, it was also the first time I think I heard. Like look on Instagram for people's Mars pictures and this has beaten all of them. (laughs) And this was, uh, it's also the first time they got sound, I think, from Mars, which is just like a hissing wind sound. So it sounds yeah. like, you, it, it's like, they what did they say on the radio? It's like, oh, like Mars butt dialed us. And that's like all we hear. <laughs> like, it's just the background noise. It seems like kind of a, a waste. I wonder what the possible upside of that would be. But um, have you guys heard about the, uh, the parachute um, had a secret code hidden within it? Oh, I'm just looking at this now. They use binary, it looks like, to hide something in the... You're talking about the, the parachute photo where they're like looking up at it? The camera looks yeah. up at it? Yeah. And uh, well, let me see. I think it was intended to be sort of an Easter egg, and then Internet Sleuths cracked it pretty quickly. Yeah, the Internet Sleuths claimed to have decoded a hidden message displayed in the parachute that helped the Perseverance rover land safely on Mars last week. Um they claim the phrase dare mighty things was used as a motto, which has been used as a motto um, by JPL was encoded in the parachute using a pattern representing letters as binary computer code. Oh yeah. And they show you, I guess where the letters are on the parachute. I think if you, yeah, it's on the, it's on the NASA website and they call it the Mars decoder ring. And so you can see. Oh the, yeah. If you, so if you Google, wait, let me go to the, 
Yeah, I have to I have to check with my friend, but my friend Christian, he he had a very small part on this, but he helped develop Pixel, which I think is like it's part of the the imaging technology that Percy uses. Oh, cool. Yeah. I just sent a link to someone's Twitter where they have also divided up the parachute into the various bits and bytes. That's cool. I mean, I guess yeah, that probably wouldn't have been um ridiculously hard to decode not that i would have thought of it immediately but uh it's not like it's something that takes like three levels of uh knowledge or something is it just translated into ascii yeah i think it's just um just like eight bit ascii eight or 16 per character i don't know i'm gonna guess eight but there's a 50 50 shot here um, so, yeah, someone has a Python script that they um, use to uh, iterate on those on that uh, parachute to decode it in that Twitter link I just sent you guys. Um, well, I think there has also been an even more impressive uh, technological breakthrough this week, and that What's is that? Uh, AI that has now conquered 1980s platform computer games. Such as, oh uh, such as Pitfall, the classic Atari game. Is that? Ho- I would have thought we we would have had an AI that could have done that a long time ago. I don't know. No? <laughs> you, you'd have thought, given that it's sort of like AI that is behind those games. But yeah, a number of it's, it's not like it's not like Pitfall is like the chess of uh, <laughs> of computer games. games. I know. Yeah. The oh my gosh! Apparently, these yeah. scrolling platform games have been challenging to solve using AI. The algorithms could help, and the algorithms could now help robots better navigate real-world environments, which remains a core challenge in the field of robotics and artificial intelligence, says this BBC article. Yeah, well, I don't know if I want them to get better at that. Well, it <laughs> like... says the, the type of environments in question includes disaster zones, where robots could be sent out to search for survivors uh, and finish them off yeah, before I was gonna claiming the like... land as their own. <laughs> I was going to say, it sounds like a scene from Terminator, where they're just digging through the rubble looking for a few humans to kill. God, seeing seeing this screen grab of Pitfall is just bringing back so many horrible memories. This game was so unsatisfying. Like, if you touch the edge of that lake, you just fall straight in, in a way that, like, makes no sense in, like, the physics of the... Did you guys, any of you play Pitfall? I don't know if I played Pitfall. It looks vaguely familiar, but I don't think that was one of my games. We only had um, we had an Atari when I was little, and we we played. It was just Pac Man and Asteroids, basically. Right. Yeah. I had a, a was, had a Galaga phase. I was a uh, big into Chucky Egg at one point. What is that? Uh, you've got to. It's it's a. It's a very it's a very platformy scroller. You've got a. Uh, is it was it just an English game? It was on the ZX Spectrum, BBC Micro, and Dragon. Oh, and also came out on the Commodore 64. Uh, what was it? What was it called? Chucky Egg. C-H-U-C-K-I-E. And you had to control, I think, uh, what was it you even controlled? It was like a little chicken that you had to go go around this platform, kept getting these eggs and avoiding the other birds. This was definitely not in my... Oh, it looks so much like Donkey Kong, though, and Mario Brothers. Uh, yeah, it was a bit. I mean, they're all very... Those games are all pretty similar. Yeah. With, like, ladders and platforms. Oh, yeah, it looks like the Super Mario stuff, like, you jump on, like, to collect coins and stuff like that. 
Um, there's Jet Set Willy as well, which is the sequel to Manic Miner. <laughs> none, none of this is very good. I know, I'm like, me. what? None of them at all. <laughs> By the way, I did I put a link to the uh, Pitfall ad from 82 or 83 that has a an adorably young Jack Black, probably like 10 years old. Wow, I didn't know he was doing stuff from young. Yeah, I mean, I don't know that the, that there are much between that and and like uh, Bob Roberts ten years later, but oh my gosh, he's super young! Isn't that so funny? <laughs> Baby Jack Black. I know. <laughs> I so heard, what you? I heard on the radio today. Did you guys hear about this? This is like from a few years ago, but it was on. I think Ask Me Another, and they were trivi- They were quizzing somebody about New Mexico, and like they said that. There was like a, a bunch of copies of the ET Atari game were uncovered at like a landfill in New Mexico several years ago. Oh like, yeah. Like I guess they'd been buried like when Atari went under and like they didn't really do well selling ET. <laughs> so they just yeah, threw it's, them all out. A, I think there's like a a documentary about that on Netflix, um, because it was this urban legend for a long time that it was the worst game and biggest failure in video game history and, and they dumped an entire dump truck worth of like excess products in this landfill somewhere. And so, yeah, someone went to dig it up and like, it wasn't quite in the quantities that like, it's neither, it's not exactly validating the urban legend, but it also didn't like debunk it because they found like uh, it was a dump site for that company. There were some games and that was one of the games they found in there, but not, not like an entire, you know, trucks worth of here's all the ET. But yeah, if if you ever look up like videos of, of walkthroughs of that game, it is amazingly bad. And I guess it was made by some guy who had had some hits before, but he was just mm-hmm. like give, given this insane deadline to make like Christmas 1981 release or something. So they just churned out this awful, awful, unplayable game. Oh, God. Yeah, because I think he said like they wanted it to like sync with the, the film coming out and like they just didn't have enough time to develop it properly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, there is something on Netflix about. Uh... Oh, yeah. It's called I'm, I just found it. Um, it's called Atari Game Over. Yes. That's the name it's, of the documentary. <laughs> It's very well made. I'd recommend checking that out. Oh, this looks cool. Yeah, it's from 2014. Okay, so this is older trivia. I just thought that was hilarious when I heard that today. So. Oh, it is. It, and then, like, <laughs> just getting to see some of the actual game in that documentary, you're like, oh my god, this is the absolute dumbest video game I've ever seen. Do they still nope. turn movies into computer games? Uh, I know I it happens they... the other way around a lot now. That's a good point. Mm. I can't think of the last time it's gone that direction. I mean, like I know they're all the Star Wars games, but like I remember right, like right. X Wing versus Tie Fighter, but that was twenty years ago. But I'm not. I know there's been more recent Star Wars games. Oh yeah, t- there's. Um, I've even bought a couple of the uh, the ones for um, Oculus that are kind of a mix of like. Oh yeah. Immersive like walk walk through kind of. They're not that hard game wise, but they're fun because you're just in that world for half an hour or whatever. Yeah, what is... And you get to do, you get to do a lightsaber, which is very satisfying. Oh, that's cool. I mean, how is Oculus? Because I feel like the concept of VR, like when you'd go to like carnivals or like fairs or other things where you'd try out headsets back in the day, like I get I would get motion sickness like very easily trying those things out. So like, how does it feel? How does the I Oculus it, technology feel? I I love it. Matt either doesn't like it or is mad because he has the last generation one. I forgot which. I, or look, both. I, I don't, I'm I'm okay with it. I enjoy it, but I haven't been on mine in a while. And I yeah, am annoyed I think... that I got the uh, older one that of shortly before the better, higher spec, and cheaper <laughs> and 
and cheaper <laughs> and also lighter one came out. <laughs> but yeah, I have the, the one that came out last fall that Matt's mad about. Um, I, I, I think you don't get sick unless you're playing, like there's a roller coaster game and mm-hmm. that one, you can be sort of nauseous because the motion doesn't match the motion of your body, which is mm-hmm. what, that's what usually makes motion sickness is just a disconnect between visual and, you know, your, your um, uh, vestibular system or whatever. Uh, but when you're just doing things where you're in a world, it matches how you're moving. So it doesn't oh, really, cool. yeah, I don't, I don't think it gets, that's not a problem. I don't think. Um, and I just think it's going to be, I guess it also depends if we're stuck at home for another year, but if we are, I think it's going to be really interesting to see what kind of useful things come from that. And there's just tons of things that I'm sure 10 years from now will be common to use that for. Like if you're house shopping, it's going to be stupid to go drive to 10 houses when, you know, someone could just take one of those cameras, do a walkthrough of a house, and you could just do an entire walkthrough from home. Oh, for sure, because that's like a, basically like that a step up. That's a step up from like the three D imaging and walkthrough videos now, basically. Right, right. So just th- tons of things like that that I'm sure we can't even predict yet will be more common with that. Um, I just, I, I think the only thing that slows it down is just like the 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 door comp you have to get over, just you know, caring about what you look like putting this thing on, you know. <laughs> But every time I've like had someone come over and seen it, they put it on. That everyone's like pretty instantly wowed. Like it's pretty hard not to be excited about it. Yeah, I I was like I think the last like game system like I had and was into as a kid was like Super Nintendo. And my brothers were much more of the the gamers. But um, Brandon and I we got we got the the newer we got the play, the PS5 in early January. And because um, we had friends who had. They gotten the one without the disc drive, and they were going to return it. And I was like, "Can we? Can we get it from you?" Like, I was like, "Do not return it," because it was when, like, right around the holidays, and they were hard to get. And I haven't played video games in a long time, and I'm like so impressed with like how they've changed. But then again, it's been like 25 years. <laughs> no, so. I'm, sh- I'm sure the PS5's got to be nuts. Yeah, I'm looking at the prices now. People want like 800 bucks for these. Oh yeah, my God. we paid we paid like face value from from our friends, and it came with an extra controller, a year to the PlayStation store, a warranty. Like it came with all this other stuff. And I was like, and then I did the math and I was like, okay, like they're just literally charging us face value. So that I felt, I felt pretty good about that. Like that was, yeah, we weren't getting, we were, we were getting a good deal. Yeah. Why not get back into games for COVID times anyway? Yeah. And it's the controller's pretty neat. Like it, I mean, it, I know that they used to have like attachments that would like make the packs vibrate, but like this time it's like there's speakers in it. There's like a touchpad sensor. And now like if you, it's kind of like the Wii in the sense that if you move the controller, like it does certain things within the game, but mm-hmm. I haven't played in so long that my brain just feels like scrambled eggs, like having <laughs> to do like 87 things at once just to like walk like three feet in this game. <laughs> well, I was, that's an upside of like the VR stuff is it's mostly intuitive, but you know, you don't, you don't have a ton of buttons. You're just holding mm-hmm. a thing that has like two triggers and, um, and, and those things are just intuitive also. Cause when you pick something up, you're just squeezing your hand as if you would be picking the thing up. So oh, that's super cool. people could just pick it up pretty quickly, but I feel like I've spent too much time plugging VR. I don't I know. Have any investment <laughs> in, uh, sorry. <laughs> we, we also should be wrapping up the show pretty soon. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> But you can find us now on Oculus. And, uh, <laughs> are there games that people can challenge you on online? Listeners to the show can find you online and, and play against you? Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I the ping pong game is actually pretty great. <laughs> so if someone has 11, the ping pong game, find me, um, Andy T. Wood, I think. We could play some ping pong. 
Or if you're in alt space, that's also like a pretty fun, just sand, sandbox kind of thing. People build worlds that you can go explore in. And I've, I've got some friends around the country who have headsets now. We go like meet up and just, it's also just a fun pl- way to have a phone conversation that's also in a 3D crazy surreal world. <laughs> so. Oh, that's pretty cool. Well, maybe we should do a little probably science meetup in alt space. That we could totally do that. Yeah, that's, this is uh, definitely going to be one of these things that we discuss and then never do. But yeah, it's... well, you'd have to get your your better headset. Actually, no, I'm sure your Oculus. I, I've got on alt space on my oh, okay. older headset. Well, we should meet up there. I'll show you some of my favorite um, user worlds in there. There's, there's like this, a virtual record store someone made, and whenever you pick up a record, you hear the songs on that record play. It's pretty cool. Oh, it's great. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, anyway. I, I did go into a comedy club in there once and it was a nightmare. I didn't. Oh. I, just, I, I ran a mile before even the possibility of performing came up. It was just like, oh, oh, God. I've, I, I, whenever I go online, I check to see if there are open bikes because they're usually so satisfying as train wrecks. Uh, and and <laughs> people, are, people are so supportive. Like, it's usually people singing along with some like, bad karaoke backing track. And the sound quality is atrocious because it's just the mic built into their headset. But everybody, you can see that there are forty people who are standing there watching and listening. Like that's how starved we are in COVID <laughs> times. And I've sat through an entire awful song just because I was fascinated at the, at the confidence of this person. <laughs> oh my god, uh, Sarah, where can yes. our listeners find you and everything you're doing? Um, they can find me on Twitter and Instagram um, at it's Sarah S A R A H P Dorfman. So at Sarah P Dorfman on all the places, all the things. I think that's even my LinkedIn name if they wanted to connect with you. I do. Yeah. Although I have a friend whose dad, um, he LinkedIn. Yeah. Like people connect there, but one of my coworkers was like, yeah, my dad uses it as a dating tool. And I was like, that's creepy. Oh, I've heard of people getting like proposition through LinkedIn. I have never been on LinkedIn. I also blocked LinkedIn from my inbox because I kept getting spammed by invitations. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now I, I just get a lot of random people. I think because Interworks is like, um, we've been a partner with Tableau for so long. Um, we get a lot of other companies messaging almost everybody at the company being like, we want to partner with you. We want to do this. And then it's we're just like, no. So we get to kind of be snobby and like ignore them. But um, but yeah, I don't usually use it that much. But yeah, Twitter, I'm there occasionally. Instagram, it's not hard to find me. So Excellent. Uh, you can find us, as always, at Probably Science on Twitter, individually at Andy T. Wood and at Matt Kirshen. ProbablyScience.com is our website where we post all of the show notes and also links to our Patreon and PayPal donation buttons. Thank you very much, everyone who helped keep this thing going. And also everyone who spares the word and tells other people about our show and tweets and posts and writes nice things about us in the review section of things like Apple Podcasts. So thank you all of those people. Probably science at gmail.com is the email address for any questions, comments, clarifications and stories you would like us to cover. Please keep those coming in. And uh, we will see you next time. But Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, no, thank you guys so much for having me. I hope hope it was interesting learning about data. (laughs) (laughs) Well, send in your graphs and charts showing exactly how interesting it was. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> I will, that is your out. challenge not you you've already done enough work <laughs> it's, it's your turn to relax now listeners you know the software now do it let's go do it go do it <laughs> or don't who cares uh, I care I care a lot <laughs> bye bye bye